1970, the violence of the Vietnam War spilled over the border into neighboring Cambodia. For five months now, a vicious war has been fought in what was one of the world's last havens of peace. Cambodia was a lovely land, possessing, it was said by all who went there, a dreamlike quality all of its own. Today, it is a battlefield. By 1975, the revolutionary forces of the Communist Party of Kampuchea, better known as the Khmer Rouge, seized the capital, Phnom Penh. Their leader, Pol Pot, became the de facto ruler of Cambodia. Their perceived enemies were numerous and included the educated and city dwellers, such as the family of Sarah Paul Lim. I was nine years old. I was born in the city and therefore I'm the target of the revolution. In this episode, I hear Sarah's first-hand account of her and her family's tragic experiences during the Cambodian genocide. Some historians have portrayed the Cambodian genocide as an event founded in the Cold War and the ideological battle between East and West. But in order for Pol Pot's brand of nationalistic, militant Marxism to take hold, other ingredients needed to be present in the country. The seeds of conflict had been quietly spreading in Cambodia for a long time. Once a religious and agrarian country, Cambodia had been going through dramatic upheaval for over a century, as Sarah explained. The Buddha suggested that you humble and you live a simple life with no greed. And came the 1800 to the early 1900, when the French came in as a protectorate, it was found that the country have a great resource. The French began to establish an expansion to economy, bringing more Chinese investors to run the economy side. Rice production was the best in the world. The French also brought in Vietnamese immigrants to work on the civil service area where they had experience. And back then, majority of Cambodian or the Khmer people were not literate. Education was not really required, especially if you live in rural. And in terms of global knowledge, there's so limit to living off of the land, right? And so as the economy booming, the golden era where city folk, French influence, progressive in rock and roll and music, then the inequality began to have a bigger gap. Those who can afford to live in the city and suddenly you see immigrants with the Chinese and Vietnamese ethnic half uh, live a better off life than the indigenous Khmer people. And then, of course, racism began to have that. My mom used to say that uh, my grandfather was not liking very much working under the French. A lot of higher position were reserved for French people. And both my grandparents used to work under the French leadership. So that has a huge impact. And with society that focus on classes, the noble and the elite and rich begin to 
have more excessive and then the poor were unable to eat and survive and afford to send their kid to school. And that's why I kind of now understand the Khmer Rouge intention of entering into the communism where they try to get rid of corruption. So in other words, they call everyone that have exposure to the outside world or being educated corrupt. The impact of over a century of oppression and inequality. I wonder why didn't anybody do anything about it? What a neglect. Before the interview, you pointed out that there was a lot of ill will towards the Vietnamese among the older generations of Cambodians. How did they view their eastern neighbours? Vietnamese were really had every intention of trying to take Cambodia and eliminate all its people. So then fear that one ethnic group was going to take over your entire ethnic group and for the French to bring in those who can produce quick revenue without consideration of the country history of what their historic enemy was and of how the resentment was built without helping the reconciliation of relationship brought in more so that it has a compound hatred in many ways. What do you recall about the takeover of Phnom Penh by the Khmer Rouge? I was nine years old in the city Phnom Penh. I recall being evacuated from our home, being forced to leave and a lot of people pushing on the street, trying to move according to where the gunpoint were. You have to keep on moving people actually exiting the city. I mean, completely mass exit and with whatever they can carry. Mom and dad have four children with them at the time and grandparents, my paternal grandparents. I, I was nine. I have three younger brothers, five, seven, and eight. As a young kid, I can imagine that you and your siblings would have struggled to grasp what's going on and why. Did your parents attempt to try to explain the situation to you? I think it was not until we were settled in a community camp where my parents both realized what it was all about. And they did quietly in a whispering tone, letting us know to not disclose our identity. Both parents were white collar. My mom was an accountant working her way in management position. And my dad, a businessman running many projects in important export business and white collar. And so when they told us, when asked to make sure that we say that Dad is a taxi driver and mom is a seamstress, even though we live in the city. But they were trying to make sure that blue-collar position were what they were holding. And we were not to say we had a privilege to go to school. We can't read and write. So in a way, you know, my brother and I thought, oh, you're asking us to lie. But it was the lie we understood that was life and death kind of lie. So we accepted. We were children. We were confused, really confused at everything. 
in these camps for you know what could pass as a normal if there's such a thing as normal in those conditions day what did average activities look like from one day to the next at the beginning it was a division of camp you know that the separation the family separation began when my dad had to be separated and gone to another camp for the men only and then mom had to work in the women group and us children in the children group depend on age you have to perform a task that was assigned like i was always had to carry a bundle of hay or a basket of dirt moving it from one place to another it was always about being physical activity and showing that you're performing for the government and if you're not performing you don't deserve your daily portion when we enter the camp we were stripped of everything they checked regularly to make sure that my parents and, and us kid have nothing to show that we could survive on our own it's no individual you know industrialized we can go look out for food everything in the community belong to the anka it's mean government so we can't even pick a fish if we see it and we can't even pick a fruit if we see it and if they catch us doing all of that it's life and death as a kid you know 9 years old how did you perceive your oppressors at the time i was naive again i did not comprehend what was going on i was confused in terms of how the system worked and then suddenly people that grow up in the rural area they have more privilege than i am so they became the boss i don't know whether i call them oppressor but they have more privilege and they bully a kid like me uh from being born in the city and of course all the people that live in the city were persecuted whether they teacher military officer civil servant or other and for me for a while i couldn't understand why they hated me so much i got pushed around and i almost died a few time and yeah it was hate and i couldn't understand why they look like me they speak the same language as i am and they hate me so much just because i was born in the city i didn't know my crime and that was my realization was that i was born in the city and therefore i'm the target of the revolution during this period from the invasion of phnom penh all your time in the camp through to your eventual escape from cambodia what would you say was the most frightening period for you the entire time during the khmeru was fearful to me almost for a year that mom and i after i watched three of my brother die and then i witnessed the last image of my father in 1976 when he came to visit for that last time and then of course getting a chance to see my grandfather before he passed as well so it was living in fear at the same time having that confused and sadness and angry that it was senseless 
and couldn't understand the adult, how they treated children like myself and my brother and older, of course, and my grandparents. It was the most fearful time during that era. And I had no idea why I'm still here sometimes. Event that no one should forget if you live through those kind of era. How were you able to leave Cambodia? After the war, I think when mom and I were pushed way, way into the jungle during the Khmer Rouge. So when the Vietnamese was already liberated the city, we were still running trying to find our way back to the city. When we did, mom did not go to our house in Phnom Penh right away. She was just wandering with me, homeless from one province to another, looking for any relative and friend we could find. And we we went to Bat Mong, I think, to live with her friend for a while. And then we kind of roaming around the city, trying to find uh, her sibling who live and who die. And then after we found out that some of our family member came to United States, that when mom attempt to leave Cambodia, it's not a voluntarily, in a way, it's not a free access to just cross the border. You have to hide, you can only leave at night time. So you try to evade Vietnamese soldier that patrol the big highway and then you have to listen carefully to the person that you pay to whatever you have found and to get you into the Thai refugee camp in the border of Thailand. And that's how we did it, trying to make sure we don't get killed and get raped and get robbed. I know I was already 13. We didn't make our way to the refugee camp until 1981. And my mom shaved her head and my head so I looked skinny and like a boy and then I was holding this baby that pooped all over me so that you know stinky just to make sure that I'm not a girl it's a scary uh, period as well but we made it and we stayed two years at the refugee camp and then we came to the United States in 83. Thankfully you were eventually able to escape from Cambodia How were you able to do that? America back then, more so than now, would have been much different to Cambodia. But in your situation specifically, having been in work camps, seen the horrors of war, and then spent time as a refugee, what kind of challenges, both practical and psychological, did coming to America pose for you? When you're flying for the first time, like I was then during my teenage years, it was scary. Touching down was the best part for me was reuniting uh, with my maternal grandmother and Anne and my oldest brother that was able to escape with my grandmother in 1975, right before the Khmer And that was the highlight. But the challenge is learning English for the first time. (laughs) It was not as easy as I thought. It was, you know, struggling. And then getting into high school, right, and learning how to speak English for the first time, uh, the pronunciation was always off and I would get uh, laughed at and some of those insensitive remarks. But back then, 
was not offensive to me because I would always knew that I've been through tougher time than that. So just word will not kill me. And that was what I told myself uh, how to adjust into a new environment. The psychological part of it was that there's no such thing as an instant healing of the thing that I saw. But the best part was using denial in a temporary method to just live because that was a lot of living for me. I so enjoying seeing different kind of food and trying different things and seeing people look like me and seeing many other people that I make friends with a complete diverse group. And it was just that spirit of that survival spirit. It was just uh, more I, I wanted to to know so much more. And I worked endlessly and I was not even tired. It doesn't matter if I get up at 4 a.m. to go work at the, the donut store before school and after school and start working full time since I was 18. And I was trained by the Camaro to work. So I was able to have self-discipline and goal-oriented because of that. And until, you know, as an adult reaching half a century that that I'm now having time to reflect because in the last four years of my life of being here in America, I did not take the time for self-reflection. I did not take the time to really understand what I went through. So in many ways, for me, this is the time that I reached the point of what is my purpose in life after seeing what I saw. Despite the nature of the regime, because of the Cold War and conflict between the Khmer Rouge and, at times, other communist nations, Pol Pot's militants did, at times, receive varying levels of support from the West. Having seen what happens in your country, has that ever made you question the morality of the West? In terms of what I know right now through history, certainly, yeah. Those who in the political decision-making, they made it self-serving in their own way. But one thing I understand it to be true is that the moral responsibility that many of the nation and especially United States took in terms of admitting a large majority of refugees from Southeast Asia due to their involvement in the region at that time in the 70s, in a way I felt some way justified. They tried to make amends. Right. Obviously, you lost your father, brothers, other you know friends, family members in Cambodia. Do you feel that, in a sense, you're now carrying a torch for those that you lost, as well as, you know, countless other Cambodians who endured the same fate? I felt that I've been carrying a heavy torch, actually, in terms of that internal responsibility that I wanted to live so much for those who didn't get the opportunity to live. I felt that in the last 40 plus year, I lived my life 
on behalf of the three brothers that I watched die and on behalf of my father who who didn't get to live his life, that I not get a chance to live past his life. And he was at his prime early 40 when the Khmeru took him away. In my own responsibility that I see was trying so much to, to live the life where I give back to the community. My survival guilt would, would always had me doing things nonstop. Just because I live, I feel like I always need to do more for the betterment of the community. At the same time, I just realized the biggest thing that I was trying to live for my brother and my father and all that I hope and all that I know now is that I can only live the best quality of life in honor of them, right? By being kind and compassion, look out for one another when no one was looking out for them during that time. Of all the people that I know from my family, how we were so kind to each other and always giving our neighbor food when we know that they have less than us. And to be in the Khmeru who completely turn everything upside down and becoming this perpetrator that didn't look at us as human. They somehow see us as not human. I'm not sure what a corrupter looked like, but to them, we were corrupted. We shouldn't be exist. We need to be eradicated. We need to be you know, demolition. It's just something really not normal for me as a child to, to even thought back and look back and wanting to know what what went wrong. What what did we do wrong as a society? So as a child, you saw the people who were educated, professionals, teachers, so forth, being persecuted and being killed because of their education and their social standing. On coming to America, despite having to learn a new language and culture, you pursued a doctorate degree. Was there anyone in particular that inspired you to do that? Yes, my maternal grandmother, we call her Ma Ye. She was born in the early 1900 from a small village. And back then, a woman her age cannot read and write not only her family, farmer, unable to afford, but the society did not allow women to read and write. And all she wanted was to be able to read Buddha book experience outside. And when she had marriage arranged at 18, she wishes to marry somebody that literate. And so she was able to do that. And of course, able to get her children to be able to read and write. And yet came the Khmer Rouge, reverse the progress that she was trying to make by punishing us and, of course, her children for being able to have skill and knowledge and contribute to the society at large. And I felt really confused, but at the same time, knowing that was the intention was targeting the educator. It was my way of restoring that educational value that lost in not just the Cambodian community, but in my family that 
came from my grandmother who always wished to be able to have higher education, to be able to, to be literate and have knowledge. As a society, meaning all of us, Cambodians, Americans, people all across the world, what lessons do you think we could and should learn from what happened in Cambodia? A lot. <laughs> we we have to learn. And historical significance, especially those nations that gone through such as genocide, mass killing, we have to really learn to prevent it from ever happen again. I mean, look at our human action in the 20th century, from the Holocaust to Rwanda to the Cambodian, the Khmer Rouge genocide. We kill for the purpose of what political or whatever, over 100 millions of people in the 20th century alone. And how was it that we allow history to keep on repeating itself? Because we were not learning it right. We're supposed to learn uh, why we did what we did. And as a kid who spent that three years, eight months, and having to watch, having to see what adults did to kids and to each other, it was bewildering, right? So the lesson that I hope that people will learn from my experience is to be kind to one another, to know that we, we are in the same human species. There's certainly no difference. But what we have to be responsible is shaping the society that we live in and how we want to pass that on to our kids. There was a time that I know it trauma that I was mad. I was angry at even my mother who lost three sons and a husband. I felt that and even my grandparents, even though they passed, what did they do or didn't do to create such a society of inequality that led to killing, led to innocent people killing each other. I'm still looking in depth to learn from that. My existence today, it was because of kindness and compassion of others as well. Otherwise, I wouldn't have the opportunity. And we're learning from it. It's not about looking for to assign blame, but learning from it in terms of how can we as society help to make sure that we prevent uh, such future disaster. That's the hope, right? Okay, so lastly, you've been very forthcoming about this traumatic period in your life and the effect it's had on you and your family. I know there is a lot more to the story that we haven't been able to cover here, but you did tell me you are bringing out a book. It's going to contain much more detail and information about this horrific ordeal for you and your family and how you've helped to move forward. Can you tell me a little bit about the book? I'm releasing a memoir by the end of this year. It's coming to terms with historical trauma based on my experience in terms of more detail than what I have shared. It's so important just for me finding closure 
with my own trauma, but it's so important for others that have similar experience as I am to see, uh, to really find that peace within themselves instead of the shameful feeling that some continue to harbor and also the denial that it's not that, no, this such thing will never happen. And that denial and unresolved grief is adding the fuel. It's now finding its way to next generation. So there's an intergenerational trauma exists because our inability to communicate of what is right and what is wrong. It's just feeling that shame and resentment and not wanting to share that in itself continue that traumatic and seeing the adult generation who became debilitating, you know, physically, emotionally and mentally, like completely shut down in terms of their bodily function just because they couldn't talk about their traumatic experience. And that's what I'm hoping that I share that, what I learn and my own perspective of what I see that can help others. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing this really, really powerful story. I really appreciate it. In the next episode, I speak with a woman whose family escaped conflict and found refuge in the United States, only for that conflict to perversely follow them here, leading to the murder of her father, and how she then found herself in a position where she was lobbying for her father's killer's release.